Today I am speaking with Robert Wright. Robert is an author, I think most famously, of the book The Moral Animal, which was one of the first books that many of us read on evolutionary psychology. Robert has written many other books and for many journals. He's written for The New Yorker, The Atlantic, Time, Slate, The New Republic. He's a recipient of the National Magazine Award for Essay and Criticism and has been a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award. Uh, he's taught in the psychology department at the University of Pennsylvania and in the religion department at Princeton. And he's currently a visiting professor of science and religion at Union Theological Seminary in New York. And Robert's new book is Why Buddhism is True, The Science and Philosophy of Meditation and Enlightenment. And we talk almost entirely about the book. We, we start the conversation putting some of our checkered history to rest so that we can move on. Those of you who know the history will know that it has been, um, as I often say of these kinds of things, uh, fairly prickly. But we have a very collegial conversation on the topic at hand. We talk about the connection between meditation and morality. There's a fair amount about the, the harmony between evolutionary psychology and the Buddhist view of the mind, also a lot about the, the illusoriness of the self and how to make sense of that claim. In any case, I now bring you Robert Wright. I am here with Robert Wright. Robert, thanks for coming on the podcast. Well, thanks for having me, Sam. So you've written a, a fascinating new book, which I'm very eager to talk about. But before we dive into that, I need to say a word or two, or we should say a word or two about our history, because some of our listeners will be aware of it, and they, as a result, will be waiting for this conversation to run completely off the rails. I'm sure we're capable of that if we put our mind to it. I wouldn't uh, count us out. There was a passage in your book on page 17, which made me smile. I'm going I'm to read that. It gives us the, the right context, I think. You write, I don't have a hostile disposition toward humankind per se. In fact, I feel quite warmly toward humankind. It's individual humans I have trouble with. I'm prone to a certain skepticism about people's motives and character, and this critical appraisal can harden into enduringly harsh judgment. I'm particularly tough on people who disagree with me on moral or political issues that I consider important. Once I place these people on the other side of a critical ideological boundary, I can have trouble thinking generous or sympathetic thoughts about them. I, I must say, that's the vibe I've been getting from you, Lo, these many years. What do you think accounts for that? Well, first of all, if you keep calling my book fascinating or whatever you called it, I will be able to think generous and sympathetic thoughts toward you. Yeah, it's funny how that works. The, uh, I don't know. I'm, 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 uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a not a, a, I'm a, I'm a somewhat temperamental person in general, and, uh, I've always had a temper and, uh, you know, issues matter to me. Um, I mean, it's funny because the, the book is about some of the cognitive biases that lead us to behave this way. I mean, that lead us to think the worst of people under some circumstances. So I'm aware of the issue. Um, uh, I, I don't know. I, I'm, I, it's interesting. Do you think you're kind of wholly free of this? Not that I'm interviewing you. You don't have to answer that question. Well, you should feel free to interview me because this is definitely a conversation more than an interview. Always fire away. But I feel like the dynamic has been fairly one-sided 
between us. It's not to say that I can't be a jerk in other circumstances, but I feel like I've been noticing, I mean, not a ton of it and certainly not a ton of it of late, but I actually went back and looked at the history just to make sure I wasn't hallucinating or recalling in a way that was starkly self-serving. But I think the only two times we've met are both on videotape. You unearthed this interview you did with me more than 10 years ago and released it, I think, only like a year ago. So it's this time capsule interview, which is kind of hilarious because it plays like a deposition. And it's kind of funny in relation to your current book, because I now realize that your interest in things like meditation and Buddhism and the notion that the self might be an illusion and that it would be possible to be recognized as such, all of those interests predate that conversation we had a long time ago where, to my eye, I was getting a fairly incessant attitude of skepticism from you toward me on those topics. Maybe our conversation ranged over other topics as well. I think that the main issue ideologically between us has been you have felt that my linkage between the specific ideas within Islam and jihadism and therefore terrorism has been inaccurately or unnecessarily direct. And you think that much of our entanglement with the Muslim world has very little to do with religion per se. It has much more to do with politics and tribalism and other more terrestrial issues. And so we've disagreed about that. But I feel like that gave kind of everything else you were hearing from me, a kind of lack of luster, which made you deeply skeptical on points, which now I see in your book, you know, you and I basically agree. Yeah. I mean, first of all, you're right. Uh, There's a big, there's a genuine ideological uh, and slash philosophical tension between us at one level. I mean, I, I think you and some of the other new atheists are wrong about the relationship between religious doctrine and behavior generally. Um, and that in the contemporary context, that leads to unfortunate um, policies that that have exacerbated the situation. So yeah, I, I and I continue to care deeply about uh, that. Now, if that's led me to, to be unfair to you in the past, then then I was wrong to do that. I actually haven't reviewed the record that much. I, th- I was thinking that review from or the interview from uh, that I did of you ten years ago was I, I, I was reasonably civil. I mean, I'm sure it was critical because I think you're wrong, but um, but uh, but in any event, you're right. There is this broad area of agreement as well. I hesitate to say that it's worth watching, but it's worth watching just for. I mean, one, we're both more than ten years younger, which is unnerving in in and of itself. Yeah, well, I look twenty years younger. You look five years younger. That's what's unnerving. It's quite the uh, picture of Dorian Gray I wish I had somewhere. But the way it's filmed, too, is kind of hilarious. It really does look like a deposition. It's like a two-shot in what looked like, it's like a wood-paneled, you know, legal office-looking space. And everything conspires to make it seem uncomfortable. And then we had a debate, actually, on the issue that we disagree about with respect to Islam. And that was very, very weird for reasons that have nothing to do with you. In fact, there may even be reasons that you don't know anything about, but that, that was the one time I ever walked out on stage having just received a seemingly credible death threat for that event itself. That event was streamed live on the internet, and someone called the venue saying that they were going to shoot me at exactly seven o'clock at that event. And I don't know if you recall any of this, but the event started a little late, and 
the half hour preceding my walking out on stage, I had been standing in the company of three officers from the LAPD and venue security and other security, all trying to assess whether this was a credible threat. And then I remember leaving their company feeling no total assurance. What's interesting in that video is you can, you can actually see it on my face. The, the degree to which I'm scanning the audience while I'm talking is absolutely bizarre. So that didn't improve our vibes that night. But. I remember the security detail and thinking you must be a very important person. Also, I want to assure you that I had nothing to do with the death threat, Sam. It's a good method, though. If you want to win a debate, you can call in death threats on your opponent. Yeah, it would work. I mean, I'll keep it in mind for future debates. I, I remember a wildly supportive audience for you, like rock star level, wildly supportive and, and being envious. But, but uh, it was kind of an, I think it was an atheist. Yeah, it was some kind of gathering of like minded folk. Yeah. yeah. OK, well, so now to the matter at hand, we'll put all of that behind us and all is forgiven because you've written, as I said, a very interesting book on a topic that is dear to my heart. So let's just get into that. And well, I guess before we get into the book itself, just how would you summarize your interests and background as a writer and a journalist? This book is not obviously in your wheelhouse, given everything else you've done. How do you describe yourself as a thinker? I think it kind of fits in, broadly speaking. I mean, I think I've always been interested in kind of cosmic, philosophical slash uh, spiritual maybe issues. And and that's evident in uh, really probably in all my books. Um, the most obvious uh, kind of precursor, I guess, of this is my book on evolutionary psychology, The Moral Animal, um, uh, where, uh, you know, I... I noted in that I, I wasn't well versed in buddhism at the time just to be clear that it was the buddhism part that seemed new obviously the evolutionary psychology is, has been your through line for many years right I, I did note in that book and even emphasize two things one natural selection did not necessarily design us to see things clearly you know natural selection's bottom line is to get genes in the next generation and if having an illusion or misperceiving something or having a tendency toward that will help get genes in the next generation, then natural selection will favor, um, will favor misperception. I even talked a little uh, about uh, the, um, for example, the split brain experiment, suggesting that we overestimate the extent to which we have a, our conscious self is kind of a CEO self. This, the, second, um, the second thing I, I mentioned is that we are not designed to be happy and that uh, in particular, gratification is designed to evaporate because that's what keeps us motivated, you know, to seek, you know, more food, more sex, more status, whatever it is um, that has been conducive to genetic proliferation. I, I didn't I don't think I understood at the time. I did quote the Buddha saying something in that book, but it was kind of off topic. I mean, I, I, I don't think I understood at the time that these two things, having illusions about the world and being prone to suffering are not only, well, I knew that at least, I, maybe I knew they were emphasizing Buddhism. I didn't understand the way Buddhism links them up. In any event, I certainly did not understand the extent to which, as I now believe, um, evolutionary psychology provides a kind of a backstory um, for Buddhism and uh, helps corroborate even some of Buddhism's most uh, radical assertions. And also, I mean, I think uh, modern psychology more broadly does. There are experimental findings that have nothing to do 
necessarily with evolutionary psychology that also back up Buddhism. So I see, I see a the, the clearest connection with that book, but I, I could probably find some little linkage with, with other books. Now there's a whole other part of me that has written op-eds about foreign policy and so on. That's only connected to this book in the sense that I think if we, if everyone in the world did see things more clearly in a way that I think uh, meditation facilitates, um, we would have fewer uh, wars and foreign policy problems in general. Well, so I, I should mention the title of the book. The book is Why Buddhism is True, The Science and Philosophy of Meditation and Enlightenment. And we will get into the significance of all those words. But I guess let's just linger on the title for a second, because this I can only imagine as an author who has tried to dust off the term spirituality and put it in scare quotes with really never a feeling of comfort. You don't have to imagine that, right? I mean... Uh, yeah, no, I, I mean, I, I did that in Waking Up. In fact, we had the same publisher, uh, Simon & Schuster. Right. So I can imagine this title, Why Buddhism is True, gave you a little trepidation. Well, for more than one reason. I mean, first of all, it, it just sounds uh, kind of unbearably uh, overbearing or something. I mean, I mean, you know, it's not, it's not a humble title. There's that. There's like, who the hell are you to, to say that after, you know... 2,500 years, you've come up with some, you know, some fresh insight into the question of uh, the foundation of Buddhism's truth. Secondly, what are you doing using a word like true when there are even parts of Buddhist uh, philosophical tradition that cast doubt on whether that word has ultimate meaning? Third, what do you mean by Buddhism? You know, there are lots of different, you know, Buddhism-like like all spiritual and, in a way, philosophical traditions, has evolved over time and developed these different branches. In some cases, the different branches have different ideas. So isn't it essentialist to act as if there's a single Buddhism? Um, all those questions naturally get asked. I, I actually address those in a, in a quick note to readers at the very beginning, or at least acknowledge my awareness of them. Um, you know, I, I joked to friends in publishing before the book came out that uh, the, the title may be a little hyperbolic, but I don't think it exceeds industry standards. But I, I you know, honestly, I'm willing to stand by it. I, I mean, I, I also have an appendix where I elaborate on the specific uh, Buddhist ideas that I think are corroborated and the extent of their corroboration, I'm claiming. Uh, and I elaborate a little more on what I mean by true. But but you know, with all that as qualification, um, I'm serious about the title. And I don't, it's not that I've had some special insight. Certainly, as you know, if you've read the book, I don't claim to be some kind of great meditator. I mean, Sam, you have much more meditative depth and meditative history than I have, and you've had deeper experiences. Um, I just think that until the advent of modern evolutionary psychology and some findings from experimental psychology, uh, in general, it was it was not possible to nail some of this stuff down the way you can now. So it's just uh, it, it's like for mo for almost all of twenty five hundred years, it hasn't been possible to make the kind of argument I'm making. Yeah, well, there's one thing you bring that is pretty novel, maybe entirely novel. I don't know that I have encountered it anywhere, which is the the piece that we'll talk about the way in which evolutionary psychology really dovetails nicely with the truths as they can be gleaned from Buddhism or, or specifically 
the practice of meditation. I guess the other caveat here is that you are not endorsing any form of Buddhism. You're not arguing that rebirth is true or likely to be true. And I don't think you talk about it in the book, but I, I would imagine you're not any more of a fan of Buddhism as a reservoir of political insight than I am. I mean, if you look at societies that have been Buddhist historically, they have fairly unimpressive political fortunes. And the people who've argued that Cambodia under the Khmer Rouge was made possible in large part because of a Buddhist spirit of quietism that incubated that kind of extremism. I don't have a strong opinion about that, but it's just not obvious that Buddhism is the perfect operating system for a society to thrive politically or scientifically or in any other way. I guess people would want to remind us of what's happening in Myanmar right now and very strange career arc of Aung San Suu Kyi, who was everyone's favorite saint when she was under house arrest, and now she's not far from some you know bizarre angel of tribal vengeance in her not dealing responsibly with the Rohingya Muslim ethnic cleansing crisis. So it's not Buddhism. You're really pushing for as a, any kind of ideology. It's, there are certain things in Buddhism, specifically mindfulness meditation and the truths about human experience that can be gleaned from it that you think give us a, um, an unusually good look at w- what it's like to be us and what the prospects are for bettering our lives by a, a deliberate use of attention. Would you, would you agree with that summary? Yeah, I'd go a little. I'd go a little further. I mean, I'd say first of all, um, you're right. I'm not defending things commonly considered supernatural or or exotically metaphysical like rebirth, and I make that clear at the beginning too. I'm talking about the naturalistic part of Buddhism, um, sometimes called secular Buddhism. I'm a little ambivalent about that phrase, but I would say I am defending. Well, not just radical claims. Well, well, first, let me say, I think at the heart of Buddhism, pretty broadly, lies what I consider a kind of amazing claim, which is that the reason we suffer and the reason we make other people suffer is that we don't see the world clearly. And that's, I say it's an amazing claim because uh, it suggests that you can kill three birds with one stone. If you can learn to see the world more clearly, then you will suffer less. You will be a better person toward other people. That's, that's the idea. And I think that's found pretty broadly uh, across the Buddhist traditions. I, I certainly think you can locate that in both uh, Theravada and Mahayana. And if you ask what they mean by see the world clearly, again, in both traditions, there are some pretty radical claims about the extent to which we're deluded. I mean, the idea that the self doesn't exist, or even that our conception of the self is, is way, way off base. That's a radical claim. Um, the doctrine of so-called emptiness, that, that our perception of the world out there is deeply misleading uh, in ways we could get into uh, later if you want. Um, that's a radical claim when you look at what the claim is. And I'm actually defending those propositions to a pretty considerable um, extent. And I'm certainly defending that, that, that first thing that, that um, you know, the reason we suffer, uh, you know, th- that our suffering and our bad behavior are related to not seeing the world clearly. Right. Well, I guess it's, it says something about me that the truths of selflessness and emptiness and the connection between suffering and seeing the world clearly, those 
weren't among the radical claims that I was thinking about when, when I was differentiating you from the rest of the world's Buddhists. All of that seems now, to me, straightforwardly true, and, and, we'll, and we'll talk about all that. That's based on your experience, though. I mean, to the you know, to the reading public, yeah, that's all. It takes some work yeah. to to even yeah. get them to take it seriously, and that's what I tried to do. I mean, I would quickly say on the political issue, yeah, you're right. I mean, it, that's a whole subject we could get into. But I think the first thing people have to understand when they ask, well, wait a second, what about Myanmar? Is you know, in Asia, lay Buddhists by and large don't meditate. Many monks don't meditate. So right away, if if you know, if my book is talking to a considerable extent, about how meditation can clarify both our literal, kind of, well, our, our, our vision of reality and our moral vision, that's what's happening. The horrible things that are happening right now in that part of the world are not, you know, all that closely connected to that uh, claim. Yeah, no, that, that is something that is not often appreciated, that meditation is a very esoteric endeavor within the context of any Buddhist society, really. I, I would think this is probably true even of Tibetan society, such as it still exists, but it's definitely true of a place like Thailand or Burma. So several doors open here that I, I want to rush through each uh, at the same time. I guess, so just to summarize basically what you said about the point of contact between meditation or, or Buddhism and science, there is this alignment between what we can understand about ourselves, largely through evolution and to some degree through neuroscience, and how Buddhism describes the human condition. And understanding this both can give a, an impetus to a practice like meditation, and it can also both reduce our suffering and reduce the kind of suffering we produce for others. I think that second piece that you know speaks to goodness and morality, I feel like that connection, I feel like you've also acknowledged this somewhere in the book, that connection is less clear, which is to say there are people who seem at least to be very good meditators who aren't necessarily good people or haven't been good people. And so the, the connection between competence in meditation and being a good person is less direct than we might hope. And at least there's some evidence for that. It's certainly not automatic. Yeah. And I do, I do say that in the book. Um, and of course, you know, historically, uh, if you, you know, the Dharma, the, the Buddhist teachings have included a lot of uh, ethical instruction. The, the assumption seems not to have been uh, that if you just meditate, you'll automatically become a better person. That said, I think there's a correlation, some kind of probabilistic correlation. I mean, I think you see this even at the beginning of a meditative practice, if meditation, you know, if you're just doing what you don't even think of as Buddhist meditation and you call it mindfulness-based stress reduction and it calms you down a little, you'll probably be an easier person to get along with. I mean, uh, 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 you'll probably become what a utilitarian would, ca would call a better person just because you're causing less suffering, you know? And, and I think that that correlation tends to be there, but you're right. There are a number of famous, very adept meditators you know, who sexually exploited their students uh, and, and things like that. So it, it's not it's not automatic. And in principle, meditation is a tool, you know, adeptness at meditation could in principle be used to make you a more effectively bad person. As a general matter, I think you're, you're absolutely right. When you look at the motives in yourself for being a jerk, they are fairly 
reliably undercut by your paying more and more attention to the dynamics of your own suffering and well-being and you know questioning uh, rather skeptically why you should follow each thought to its behavioral terminus and i do think there is a as you said a probabilistic correlation between time spent practicing something like mindfulness and being more ethically sensitive before we actually get into mindfulness and its connection to what we know about ourselves scientifically how did you get into any of this? When was your interest in something as esoteric as mindfulness uh, was? It's not, it's pretty current now, but, you know, 14 or so years ago, it, it was not nearly enjoying the public moment it is now. How did you get interested and what form has your interest taken? Yeah, well, I guess, you know, probably ever since college, I had occasionally tried to meditate. It was one of those things, you you know, you're supposed to dabble in Eastern philosophy and so on. So I tried it a few times. It had never clicked for me. Uh, I'm not a natural meditator at all. I have a very limited attention span for one thing. So I finally, on the advice of a friend, tried an actual one-week meditation retreat in 2003, silent meditation retreat in the, you know, Vipassana slash mindfulness tradition, you might say Vipassana. Vipassana and mindfulness aren't exactly the same thing, but they're related. And, uh, you know, it was just the uh, first two days were hell. I couldn't focus on my breath, hated myself for failing. Most of our listeners will be familiar, I think, with this topic because I've had Joseph Goldstein on the podcast, although it's been a couple of years. But do you want to describe what a meditation retreat is like and how startlingly different it is from ordinary life for someone who hasn't done it? Sure. In fact, the first thing this friend did was say, you should go hear Joseph Goldstein talk in New York. And uh, this was 2001, because I remember it was right after 9-11. And then it's, you know, it's his retreat center, the Insight Meditation Society that I went to in in 2003. And, uh, you know, these things vary from retreat center to retreat center, uh, how they're structured and so on. At IMS, it's like... uh, by my count, I think it was five and a half hours total of sitting meditation each day, five and a half hours of walking meditation. You do a little job in the morning that keeps the cost down for everyone. Um, at night, you hear a Dharma talk by one of the teachers. Um, you know, the, the meditation sessions are 45 minutes. There's no talking except like a couple times a week, you can check in with a teacher, either in group or individual setting, but you're not talking. There's no news from the outside world. And if anybody goes to a retreat, my advice is do not bring your smartphone. Don't, whether or not the retreat center emphasizes this, get off the grid, set your email on auto reply. That's an important part of the experience. Um, so you're there, you're not, ta- you know, so those first couple of days, I'm like, you know, everyone there looks like they're doing better than I am. Uh, and most of them were, I'm sure. They, you know, they were mostly veterans probably. I couldn't focus on 10 consecutive breaths. I mean, like all day, the first day. Uh, And um, like I said, finally, it clicked. Had you meditated for some considerable period before you sat your first retreat or did you just jump right into it? No, I had not. I had not. I I had tried it a few times. I I went to a couple of meetings at a place where they did Zen in D.C. like 25 years ago. I had gone at a Unitarian church to a Unitarian church here, I mean, to sessions after the church service a few times, but no, I just, it had never, I had never understood why anyone would meditate. 
hadn't got an inkling, like zero positive reinforcement. Well, that's interesting because not many people jump into a retreat without having experienced enough benefit or, or seeming benefit from meditation to feel like they want the full immersion experience. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I honestly don't know why. I mean, as you probably know, I was brought up religiously. And so I don't know, maybe there was, you know, I, then I lost my Christian faith. Maybe there was some kind of uh, void, you know, and also, I mean, as I acknowledge in the book, I'm not a person wholly without improvements that could be made to my psyche, <laughs> you might say. And, and that's what brings a lot of people to meditation, you know, just ranging from mild anxiety to severe self-loathing, whatever the issue may be, you know, it, it, it often begins as a therapeutic thing. I think in my case, it was more than therapeutic. I, I don't think that was the bulk of it. I think I was, you know, uh, I, 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 I probably in some sense wanted salvation, you know, I mean, that's, I was, I was brought up to want salvation and, uh, I don't know, but, but I, I recommend meditation retreats. They're not guaranteed to work out wonderfully, but they, you know, I, I call them extreme sports for the mind. I mean, there can be harrowing times and deeply gratifying and awe-inspiring times and profoundly illuminating times, but it's a serious thing that I encourage people to do if they're at all inclined. Yeah. I guess, I don't know if you would agree with this, but when I recommend that someone sit a retreat or if someone comes to me you know, wondering whether or not they should sit a retreat. I tend to say that they shouldn't sit a retreat shorter than five to seven days. I feel like the first two or three days of any retreat of, of really any length, I mean, it can be two or three days or it can be three months, are the hardest. And if you only sit for a weekend, you basically have had the full experience of you know, hitting the wall of your own restlessness and, and disinclination to be there without giving yourself any time to settle in for you know what it's like to actually be there. Does that resonate with your experience? Absolutely. Absolutely. I say, like, when they say, what, what about a weekend retreat? I say, well, if it's a good way to scout out a teacher to see if you want to spend a whole week with them, yeah. Otherwise, I, I would not expect very dramatic results. So uh, I, I, I would not have gotten anything uh, out of a weekend retreat. And yet, by the end of a week... You know, and I described some of this in the book, but by the end of the week, it, it felt transformative. I, I mean, there had been both individual experiences while meditating that were, well, in one case, mind blowing, in one case, really arresting. But but beyond that, there's just this this transformation of your consciousness. I mean, I mean, not just when you're meditating, but you're like walking around in the woods and seeing beauty in places you've never seen it. And I remember in this first retreat, I came upon a weed called a plantain weed that I had actually spent a lot of time trying to kill, usually by pulling up, because it's a kind of weed that had afflicted a couple of front lawns I had had. And, um, and I, just, I, I, I just suddenly thought, why have I been trying to kill this weed? And, and, and now that's going to sound like this touchy-feely, oh, you know, but, but there's, there's, a, there's a significant point I was experientially apprehending here, which is that and and it sounds trivial when you say it as a point, okay, which is just that weed is a human imposed category. We it doesn't say weed on the DNA of uh of of weeds. It, it, it's it's a cultural thing, and some there are plants that in some cultures people have decided they don't want on their lawns or their flower beds, and that's what we call a weed. But that doesn't mean that there's any kind of objective, rigorous 
rule that separates weeds from non-weeds. And it doesn't mean that weeds are actually unattractive in some objective sense. And, and again, that sounds kind of like a trivial point that, that humans categorize things. Obviously, it's a human invented category. But Sam, you probably know what I mean. When you feel it as a perceptual shift, you know, you realize that how subtly these human conceptions and, and like stories we tell infiltrate your perception normally. So like I had been going around apprehending essence of weed in this subtle way that I didn't even understand. You know, I, I wasn't aware of doing it, but when it's gone and you're just, it's just a plant, that's a, that's a really dramatic perceptual shift. And, you know, I personally think, I mean, it, it depends on what you mean by the Buddhist concept of emptiness. And there are different interpretations of this within Buddhism, but I think the perception I had is related to one common interpretation of the idea of emptiness, which is, which is just that the things we see in the world actually don't have essences. We impose those on them. And, and to see the, you know, to see emptiness is, is to truly experientially appreciate that, that things don't have essences and that the essences we perceive reflect kind of human imposed categories. So that was on my first retreat. And, and, and again, it, it would be hard to appreciate from what I've said, how powerful it felt to like, look at a weed that I had always hated and go, that's as beautiful as the other stuff in the forest. But I think it was like a non, a, a highly non-trivial apprehension. Yeah. Well, before we get into the topic of emptiness, which I, I definitely want to touch, I think we should just remind people what the practice of mindfulness is so that they can understand what it is you were doing that could have produced an epiphany like that and others we'll talk about. And this is also speaks to why there's nothing unscientific about this enterprise. There's a lot that can go by the name of meditation or you know spiritual practice that can seem starkly unscientific because it comes freighted with specifically religious concepts and iconography and things that are being added to your experience, you know, ritualistically or, you know, by virtue of, you know, what you're visualizing or you know, the mantra you're chanting. And all of that can seem like a departure from empirical rigor. And it's not to say that all of those practices need be a departure from empirical rigor. There's a way to stand with the Hare Krishnas and chant without being a religious lunatic, I would argue. But with something like mindfulness, the connection to science, at least potentially, is very direct. All mindfulness is, is paying very close attention to experience without adding anything to it. There's no mantra, there's no visualization, there's no necessary belief framework. It's just in each moment, you are making an effort to clearly notice whatever you in fact notice, you know, whether it's a sensation in the body or a sight or a sound or a thought or a mood arising in the mind. You're noticing these phenomena, the contents of consciousness, as clearly as possible. And that clear noticing is different from the way you are tending to live in at least two respects. I mean, the one is you're tending to live your life, and this is something very few people notice about themselves until they try to meditate. You're tending to live lost in thought. You're thinking every moment of the day without noticing that you're thinking. 
and your experience of the present moment and your experience of anything you can notice is coming to you through this veil of discursivity that is in fact not noticed by you. So that's the first thing. It's just hard to pay attention because you are thinking every single moment of the day and you're not aware of it. And so you'll try to follow the breath as a, an initial exercise in mindfulness. And this is a very common experience that people will pay attention to the breath and then feel that they're doing it for even minutes at a time and then say, well, you know, I, when, when you ask them what that was like, well, I, you know, I did it for like five minutes, but then I got distracted and then I came back. Whereas, as you know, and as everyone discovers on their first retreat, you know, if their life depended on it, they couldn't stay on the breath for anything like five minutes. It's hard enough to follow five breaths in succession without getting carried away by thought. Yeah, I actually was once on a retreat with um, the Burmese meditation master, Upandita Sayadaw, whose name I think is familiar to you. It was like a two-month retreat, and it was set up in such a way that you could hear the, as you said, that you, you would have a daily or you know, every other day interview for 10 minutes with the teacher. And this retreat was set up so that you could actually, you could hear the interview that was happening before you on the retreat. So you're kind of waiting in line, you're in the vestibule waiting for your chance to talk to Upandita. And so I could hear the person in front of me every time I went for an interview. So I was hearing this person say in the beginning, you know, in the first few days of the retreat, that he could, as I just said, he could stay with the breath for maybe five minutes and then get lost and then he would come back to the breath. And, you know, I just recognized at once how absurd that was because this was not my first retreat. But then over the course of maybe six weeks, I could hear his experience getting more honest where he would say that, you know, now maybe he can get 10 breaths in succession and then he's off. That's not a description of a person's ability degrading. That is a description of what it's like to actually equip yourself with the tools to notice how powerfully distracted you are in each moment. And so just to bring one other element in here, so once you can pay attention to experience closely, again, without adding anything to it, you then begin to notice the difference between merely being aware of phenomenon and reacting habitually to phenomenon as described in the Buddhist lexicon, you know, with desire and aversion. And so your tendency to grasp at what's pleasant and push away what's unpleasant, that begins to seem, as in fact it is, a powerful source of disturbance in your mind. And as you know, the Buddhists link that to basically all forms of psychological suffering. But at minimum, this is an automaticity you can relax by merely paying more careful attention to the raw qualities of experience, non-judgmentally, non, you know, not grasping at what's pleasant and pushing away what's unpleasant. And when you do that, a door into a very different kind of experience of a sort that you just described you know, with the hated weed opens. And again, at no point have you stepped away from the spirit of scientific empiricism. You're not believing anything on insufficient evidence. You're not pretending to know something you don't know, you're actually just paying more careful attention to what it's like to be you in each moment. Right. Now, I can see people doubting this, people who haven't done it, doubting this and saying, well, so you say, you went off and meditated and you're claiming that the view of reality you had after that is truer than the ordinary view. Why should I privilege your claim? Um, I think you and I both feel on the basis of the actual experience, that there are reasons 
to believe uh, that it is a more objective view you're getting when your mind calms down. You can kind of feel the layers of uh, story fading away and 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 so on. Um, what I try to do in the book is is to provide actual you know arguments to the effect that uh, it's a clearer vision. I mean, to take uh, what you mentioned, the emphasis in Buddhism on both aversion on the one hand and a particular kind of attraction on the other, a kind of a clinging, you use the term desire, a kind of a, you know, a, a craving for something, what, what, however you want to put it. Um, I, I think that that is just a very deep insight into the way human psychology works and how it blurs our vision. Um, and, you know, the, the, if you, if you, if you pay attention and again, it, it's hard, as you say, it, it, you know, it's easy to think, well, if I want to see things clearly, I'll just look at these curtains and stare at them and not look at anything else. And there's some sense in which you're seeing them more clearly than you were five minutes ago. But but I, I think when you meditate, you realize how subtle uh, the things are that are keeping you from true uh, clarity. And and they tend to boil down to very subtle manifestations of aversion and kind of clinging or, or, or desire, right? I mean, it's like, it's like that weed. There was, there was an element of aversion in my perception of that weed that was coloring that perception in very subtle ways. And that, you know, and I argue that, that if aversion is coloring your view of something, that is inherently suspect. If you really want to talk about what is an objective view of the world, you have to remember that the aversions we have are their products of a particular evolutionary process, natural selection, as manifests in a particular lineage, namely human evolution. Um, and then, you know, on top of that particular experiences we have in our lifetimes and so on. But the point is aversion and and uh, and desire, there's not necessarily anything wrong with either of those. And in fact, both of them can be very valuable survival me mechanisms and can be of great pragmatic value and can also bring you pleasure that is not to be denied. That's, that's all fine. It, it, it's when you start, uh, when they color your view of the actual truth of things uh, that I think they are just, uh, that they are uh, philosophically suspect. So I think, you know, I, I think this, this, the, 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 this Buddhist, this cutting to the core of it, like a, more than a couple of millennia ago, that, that this emphasis on aversion and, you know, kind of clinging attraction or, or attraction, it's, it's astute and it's profound. I mean, when you think about it, since the very origins of life, to approach or to avoid is, is the fundamental behavioral decision. If you look at a bacterium, that's what its behavioral algorithm is all about. So since we were, I mean, who knows when sentience, subjective experience, as we think of it, uh, dawned, but, but in some sense, at, at its very core are these two experiences, and they, they infiltrate our emotions, they infiltrate our perceptions more subtly, and I, and I think one, that's why I think that one uh, perspective from which to appreciate Buddhist philosophy is the evolutionary perspective, if that makes sense. Yeah, well, let me just flag a possible point of confusion here. So it would be easy to 
respond based on what you just said, that of course desire and aversion have been hammered into us by evolution, and they're absolutely necessary for our survival. You're just going to wander off a cliff if you have no desire to stay alive or not suffer some horrible injury. So there's this, I think, understandable sense that a life without desire and aversion would be a bad thing, or in fact, just starkly untenable. You just wouldn't survive a day of it. There's something, I guess we could call a kind of status quo bias here. It's not well understood that the mind, in terms of its kind of raw attention, the powers of attention, can be trained, or that a person can be more or less talented in paying attention. Now, it's obviously in a kind of a physical domain, it's obvious you know, that there's a difference between an Olympic sprinter and someone who can't even get off the couch, right? I mean, there's a range of athletic abilities is undeniable. And there's a range of intellectual abilities we also recognize, but these run more in the direction of knowledge acquisition and an aptitude for it. So it's, it's not really well understood that just by you know, looking at the drapes, as you say, most people aren't in a good position even to begin to pay attention. And there really is a scope for real training here, even to get to the starting line in terms of understanding what there is to pay attention to and what the consequences of noticing it might be. And so this is a real barrier that a lot of people never surmount, which is they hear that meditation is a good idea or has all of these health benefits or psychological benefits, and they want to look into it. And so they try it for five minutes or an hour, and they look inside and they just see nothing of interest, really, because they're, they're really just sitting there thinking whether the legs are crossed or not. And they're not actually able to do the practice to a degree to reveal anything at all. The fact of that failure isn't obvious to them. And this is why taking psychedelics has been the doorway to a real commitment to something like meditation for so many people in the West, because you know many of us wouldn't have been convinced that there was a there there, but for having our normal levels of psychological unhappiness overridden for a time by one or another drug. It's not to say that drug experiences are always a perfect surrogate for what there is to be experienced through meditation. But at a minimum, if you take 100 micrograms of LSD, something is going to happen. Now, it may be very unpleasant. It could be pleasant or unpleasant, but very few people walk away from that experience thinking that it's impossible to change a human experience. I mean, they may think that it was just a drug experience and has no implication for the rest of what's possible in human life. But with meditation, you really do have the problem where you can recommend it to a skeptical person. They can think they've tried it and they've come away thinking that it, you know, it doesn't work for them or this is just a totally fraudulent enterprise. People are practicing some elaborate form of self-deception by meditating. Yeah. And I personally think that the fact that I've gotten something out of it means that just about anybody can. Again, I, tr I tried various ways to do it. It never worked, but there was a way I finally found to try it that did make it work, even if it took like a one-week silent meditation retreat. But I think there are very few people who can't come to see that, oh, yes, this is giving you a different view of the world. I mean, let me give you a, a trivial sounding example, but, uh, but I think a significant one. So where I do my morning meditation, there's like one of these little, uh, you know, 
kind of mini refrigerators. And sometimes it starts humming. And one thing I've discovered while meditating and listening to it is that actually this refrigerator's hum at least definitely consists of at least three different sounds that are coming from different parts of the refrigerator's mechanism. And they are, you know, varying apparently independently of one another. So they're kind of weaving this little uh, symphony. But anyway, I maintain that, that it is an objective fact that if I consulted with the makers of the refrigerator or somebody, they, w- they could confirm that, yeah, actually the hum is these three different things. Now, I am sure that if I had never started meditating, I would have gone my whole life thinking that a, a refrigerator's hum is a, you know, it, it is just one thing, right? And annoying in the same way that that weed of yours is annoying. Well, right. That's the other thing is when you're when you're listening to it during your meditation, it's beautiful. Uh, th- that that's uh, amazing in itself. But 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 that part you might say is subjective. What's not subjective is that I think you know I think you could confirm. Actually, I was getting closer to the truth when I said no. There's at least three different things going on in the in the machinery here. Now, um, on the uh, kind of relatedly on the on the thing you mentioned first about, well, aversion and, and, uh, and desire or attraction are pragmatically useful. That's true. But even then, I think it's important or it can be useful to anyone and, and including someone who does mindfulness meditation to get clear on when feelings are actually useful to you, the person, as opposed to when they were useful merely from natural selection's point of view. And then third, uh, as opposed to when in like a modern environment, you're, have, you're having a feeling like anxiety that, that might have been more useful in the environment we evolved in, but is not so useful now because you're reacting to a novel environment that we're not designed to, to react to. So, um, and, and this gets back to the, the fact that we're not designed to see the world clearly, right? Like, if you look at something like fear, you know, if you're taking a walk and you've been told that there are rattlesnakes around and somebody died of a rattlesnake bite while hiking, every time you, you hear the grass rustling, you're going to think there's a rattlesnake there, right? You're going to entertain that hypothesis very seriously, even believe it. If, if a lizard darts out, you may briefly literally see a snake. Um, you're going to be wrong 99 times out of 100. And you're also going to suffer, by the way. Fear is unpleasant. And both of those are designed in features from by natural selection, apparently. And the logic is clear that it's better to be safe and sorry. Better to have all these false positives of fear uh, than, uh, than to, to be insufficiently vigilant and die of a rattlesnake bite. Now, that's a case where your interests and natural selection interests coincide. You look at something else, uh, like our drive for status. Well, status during evolution seems to have been correlated with genetic proliferation, so we tend to seek it. On the other hand, the seeking of it seems to be subject to that general tendency of gratification to evaporate. So we get the promotion or we do whatever, we rise in people's esteem, and, and, and before we enjoy it for a little while, and then we want more. So there I would say, look, if you love it, go for it. But, but if, it's, if, if, if the status game is causing you suffering on balance, then you might remind yourself that was just designed to get your genes into the next generation in a different environment. It's probably not even doing that. You know, it may or may not do that now. Actually, you know, so if you want to think about socioeconomic status, 
that's inversely correlated with genetic proliferation. So there's all kinds of absurdities that a modern environment creates. Uh, and finally, if you look at something like anxiety, natural emotion. Uh, but first of all, there is the false positive issue. So like, yeah, it's natural to think, oh, well, where's my toddler? Something horrible must have happened. That's a natural false positive fine. Um, and, and maybe it's good. You, you, you know, you want to be vigilant about your toddler. But then you look at something like public speaking anxiety or the anxiety that a parent feels upon dropping their child off at a daycare center for the first day where they're going to be tended by uh, somebody, you know, the parents don't know. Well, these are these are unnatural things. I mean, it's, you know, in, a, in, in, in the environment of evolution, in a kind of hunter-gatherer type environment, they didn't do public speaking and address a bunch of people uh, where it really mattered and they had never met any of the people. They didn't, they didn't leave their children in the care of people they had never met. Um, and, and so these are cases where if you're lying awake at night before a big talk, or if you're sitting there worrying about your kid at daycare when, you, when it's not going to motivate you to do anything that's going to help, these are unproductive anxieties that they're causing you suffering. They're, they're, they are, in many of these cases, they lead to actual illusions like, like catastrophe scenarios. So I think it's, you're right that our feelings were designed to be pragmatically useful, but sometimes that th they were useful from the organism's point of view and sometimes just from the point of view of genetic proliferation and sometimes in the modern environment they're they're uh, not useful from anyone's point of view. And so I think, you know, I, I, I try to provide this this backstory in the book because I think it, it, it is it is useful for some people in, in when they're doing something that, as you know, mindfulness meditators encourage you to do, which is just observe your feelings as they kind of appear and disappear and see them as these transient phenomena and as nothing more. In other words, don't invest them with the meaning that we're naturally inclined to invest them with. I, I, here again, I think the evolutionary story can help a meditator appreciate that, yeah, uh, it might, you might be getting closer to the truth if you just drop the meaning that you've invested feelings with and just watch the feelings. Well, one thing you make very clear in the book is that nature didn't equip us to know reality as it is or ourselves as we are in the world. And it didn't equip us to be as happy as possible either. I mean, you know, natural selection has not been about maximizing the well-being of organisms. It's been about surviving long enough to get your genes into the next generation. And that's it. In the absolute limit case, it's survive long enough so that you can help your progeny get their genes in the next generation. It is not about happiness, obviously. And so virtually everything we care about is at least potentially divorceable from the imperatives of evolution and the logic of evolution. And I guess this is the point I've made before, but you know, if you were going to follow narrowly the logic of evolution and imagine that whatever your genes want must sum to your ultimate happiness, well then nothing could be better than just donating your sperm to a sperm bank if you're a man. You'll father thousands of children for whom you have no economic responsibility or to you know, squander no more resources on them. I mean, that's the perfect solution to the human condition. But obviously, that's not the way we live, and that's not what we most want out of life. And most of what most of us want is, in each moment, to 
feel much better than we tend to. And in seeking various aims in life, you know, whether they're changes in status or new relationships or tasty things to eat or anything else that we use to change our state, in seeking these things, the logic from a contemplative point of view seems generally to be to find some union with experience where, you know, consciousness achieves its object so fully that the present moment becomes good enough so that we're no longer seeking happiness in the future. Every proffered goal carries with it, at least implicitly, this idea that if you can only achieve that, you'll be able to relax, you know, if only for a time. This will finally do it. The, the itch will stay scratched. And what both Buddhism and natural selection reveal, or at least their descriptions suggest, is that that is always an illusion. One thing you get out of natural selection is that we systematically overestimate how good things will change us in the positive direction and how bad things will change us in the negative direction. But, you know, the half-life of our pleasures are never what we seem to expect. And in the book, you describe an evolutionary rationale for why that would be so. And obviously, that is something you can notice just by paying close attention to your experience through a, through a technique like mindfulness. Right. And, uh, you know, so, so yeah, I mean, it makes sense that the itch wouldn't stay scratched, as you put it, because if you imagine an animal that, you know, eats one meal and never wants another one, then you're imagining a soon-to-be-dead animal. And then further, it, it also makes sense not only that the pleasure would evaporate quickly and, 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 and would be replaced by this kind of restlessness and a longing for more and a kind of a dissatisfaction with things, but that time and again, in anticipating pleasure, we would not really appreciate this fact. I mean, it also makes sense from natural selection's point of view, not only to make gratification evaporate quickly, but to create animals who just don't focus on that fact, right? Because you want them to stay motivated. So you're right. We do, we look at the donut and we think about how good it's going to taste and not that we're, you know, maybe three minutes later going to feel uh, worse than we would have if we had never eaten it. And I'm not like against donuts or anything else. I mean, you know, but, but, um, but still that is, is, is a, is a, you know, uh, a case where a certain kind of suffering is explained by natural selection. That is to say that pleasure is quickly replaced by a restless longing and a certain kind of illusion is explained. That is to say, we keep not anticipating that fact unless we really try. And, and we've just heard people talk about this maybe, uh, but we don't naturally anticipate that fact. And, and again, you know, Buddhism was ahead of the game. I mean, in, in Buddhism, th this phenomenon of like uh, the fleetingness of gratification and our, and our failure to, to really see it is part of, in a way, a larger phenomenon of the impermanence of things generally and our failure to, to see that and truly uh, reckon with it. But, you know, it, it, it clearly does seem to be a case where the logic of natural selection helps corroborate and explain uh, the Buddhist uh, diagnosis of, of the problem. And there's another implication of natural selection for the nature of the mind, which has a kind of clear reference point in just what it's like to be aware of your experience in each moment through a technique like mindfulness. 
And it's the modularity of the mind, which you discuss in the book, because evolution is not in the business of inventing complex structures out of whole cloth. I mean, it is an iterative process. We're talking about changes upon changes upon changes where it only has the raw material of what's already there to work with. And so the human mind doesn't have completely new structures emerging in it that have some novel purpose that make us uniquely human. We're talking about evolutionarily older structures, mammalian structures and below, which get repurposed in ways which can be highly counterintuitive. But we have, uh, as I think people generally understand, a lot in common with our primate cousins as a matter of neuroanatomy. And everything that distinguishes us from, say, a chimp is a matter of structurally fairly slight tweaks and you know size changes to structures that are far older than humanity. We have a mind that is fairly creaturely in comparison with the angels of our better nature. And it's also modular, which is to say that it's kind of piecemeal. There are parts of it that are in competition with other parts of it. And our purposes and our intentions are really manifold and in many respects irreconcilable. The picture of the self that one should form here is that it's extraordinarily unlikely that there is a unified self in there in a position to seize the reins of consciousness or a place where everything comes together without any opposition. And neuroanatomically, there's no place for such a self to be standing, right? There is no one place in the brain where everything comes together. But just as a matter of the evolutionary process that delivered us, there'd be no expectation that there would be such a, a self in the head. I don't know if you want to say more about how you view the connection between evolution and the modularity of the mind, but it's something you describe in the book at length. Yeah, I, I do put emphasis on the modular model of the mind. And uh, I'd say a couple of things. I mean, first of all, you know, you, you're right. I mean, evolutionary psychologists would imagine that different kind of adaptive problems got solved by innovations in, in the structure of the brain, you know, engineering uh, amendments to the brain at different times. Uh, and and uh, the brain wasn't like designed, you know, uh, in, in a single sitting by any means. And so you, you, you expect a kind of an accumulation of, of different uh, specialized systems um, and then the ongoing refinement of those systems. But so, for example, uh, and, and it's not that easy to delineate uh, between these modules. And by the way, they don't like occupy separate regions of the brain. I mean, as you know, Sam, uh, you know, they uh, different, uh, a given uh, cerebral, you know, a given function can draw on all kinds of parts of the brain. But um, the, uh, for example, I mean, you know, when you are trying to impress some prospective mate, somebody you're romantically involved in, that to an evolutionary psychologist, that's in a specific adaptive challenge, something we're designed to do, to kind of sense what will impress them, try to impress them. Uh, when you're just trying to uh, impress someone whose esteem matters, somebody of, uh, uh, maybe high social standing or, 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 or something um, that's a, a related uh, kind of system or module that may draw on some of the same functionality of the, as the mate 
attraction module, if you want to call it that, in, in probably slightly too simple terms, and yet would be in some ways different. And then if you want to look at something, a kind of a module is wholly different, you know, the part of the brain that's in charge of making sure you get nourishment, you know, the, the part that makes you feel hunger and be attracted to food. And if you've ever been at like a cocktail party and there's somebody you're talking to um, and you do want to make a good impression, but you can see the hors d'oeuvres, you know, out of the corner of your eye, you can actually sometimes feel a little tension. Uh, the, the, the degree of tension may, may depend on actually how important you consider the person. But this is a case where you consciously feel the, the tension between modules. Now, according to the modular model, sometimes the, the modules... Uh, compete with one another at a, at a totally subterranean level. And all you are aware of is which one won, so to speak. You know, there, there, there are presumably criteria uh, for competition. They are both making claims that, that uh, their serving their need matters more uh, at, uh, in, Darwin, in some Darwinian sense. Um, and one, and the one that kind of governs your consciousness is the is is the one that you kind of feel and sense and and may in some sense be aware of and and one I have found that med a lot of meditators really respond to this part of the book the part about the modular model of the mind because uh, it, it just well I I personally think people in general often you know respond favorably because it helps make sense of the way experience feels and the way. You don't really realize that you're going from module to module, but but that's what happened is somebody showed up and somebody else left or whatever. But the reason um, that meditators respond is because it, it 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 helps make sense of things such as this. And I'm sure you've heard this, Sam, at like maybe a retreat or something, a meditation teacher saying thoughts think themselves. Now, people who don't meditate may wonder what we're talking about. But the idea is that if you get your mind to a sufficient state of calm, to kind of calm awareness, it may start to seem like, whereas you had always thought of the conscious self as this thing that generates the thoughts. It's the CEO. It's thinking the thoughts that actually suddenly it looks like the, the thoughts are just kind of drifting in from somewhere, drifting into your field of consciousness. And this makes sense in terms of a modular model because According to the modular model, at different times, different modules are injecting thoughts into your consciousness. And uh, by our nature, we kind of take ownership of them and think that, that we, the conscious self, the conscious I, actually in some sense like intentionally thought them. Although if you actually examine the process, even if you're not a meditator, you'll realize, actually, I never decided to come up with a thought, right? But, but in any event, we have this sense of ownership of them. And, uh, you know, another way that evolutionary psychology enters this picture is it provides a plausible explanation, at least. It hasn't been proven, but for why it might make sense in, in terms of natural selection for people to walk around with the illusion that they are this, you know, that the conscious self is the CEO self. Yeah, I, I decided to do everything I'm doing. I know why I have a coherent set of motivations. By the way, they're morally laudable motivations. You know, I have this whole narrative structure about why I do things. And it's, you know, it, it makes sense that natural selection would design this, uh, this specific thing that may well be just an illusion into us. So uh, in this case, uh, evolutionary psychology uh, 
which by and large does favor this module, a modular model of mind. It both has a theory about what's really going on in the mind and a theory about why we are confused, deluded about what's really going on in the mind. Well, let's talk about the experiential side of why you're justified in calling it an illusion, this self or the, the CEO self you describe. And I think we should just be clear about the ways people can be confused about this use of the word self, because to say that the self is an illusion, it's not immediately obvious what is being claimed here. I mean, you could be saying that people are illusions, right? That there are no people. And, and that's not, at least that's not the claim here. Although there's certain ideas in Buddhism that could be read as reaching that far. But the CEO self, as I read it, is this sense that most people have of being the subject of their experience, of being the thinker of their thoughts. So this phrase you just used, you know, thoughts think themselves, the reason why that's seditious and surprising is that most people are walking around feeling that, no, no, I think thoughts. I'm the thinker. I'm the author in some sense of my thoughts. And as you say, if you pay more attention, you'll see that you can't think a thought before you think it. Thoughts simply appear in consciousness. And I mean, we, what else could they do? And you are a witness of the next one that appears if you're paying attention. Otherwise, you'll just be thinking it without knowing that you're thinking it in the next moment. But you can't pick it before you pick it or it picks itself. So you are a spectator to this process. And you're really a spectator to, as a locus of consciousness, you're a spectator to everything else that arises in you. You don't pick the next sound you hear or sight you see or intention that arises. Everything is simply arising based on some unconscious processes that you, as the conscious witness of your inner life, can't inspect and did not create. And again, if, even if you seem in the next moment to seize the reins available to you and decide to make some heroic effort to do something or other, again, that itself, that intention just arises in that moment. And you are left not knowing why it arose precisely in that moment and to that degree and not in some other moment to some other degree. And whatever story you tell yourself retrospectively about why you are the way you are in each moment, again, then a thought, intention, sensation, perception is simply arising in consciousness. And mindfulness is the practice of merely paying closer attention to that. And it is possible, as you know, the Buddhists advertise, to pay such close attention to that that the felt sense of being the rider on the horse of consciousness can erode. And it can erode in brief moments where you just catch a glimpse of what it might be like not to feel like a self, where you're seeing something and for a moment there's just a mere experience of seeing. There's a kind of union of, of consciousness and its object. You describe a few moments like that in the book, which I want you to describe here, but it can be brief or it can last longer. But if you experience this for any duration of time, it indicates that it might be possible to experience it all the time, as it has been historically claimed by people. And then we can talk about what may or may not be gained or lost in that condition. But that's, that's sort of the, the inner landscape uh, we're pointing toward when we talk about the, the self being an illusion. Right. And it may sound scary, the idea of losing yourself in some sense, but it's important to emphasize that 
it tends to you know feel good. I mean, it's the, the utter loss of self or, or entirely piercing what Buddhists consider the illusion of self is is often said to be tantamount to liberation. And I, I, I'd also say, by the way, that at the other end of the meditative path, when you just uh, when you start out and you get a slightly more objective view of your anxiety and, and you get to a point maybe in in in. And, you know, fairly deep meditation, but a kind of meditation that's accessible to a beginner, I think. You, you get to a point where you're viewing anxiety with such calm objectivity that it ceases uh, to afflict you. You still kind of see it there in your abdomen, but uh, it, it and, you, and you kind of experience it in some sense, but it's no longer unpleasant. Um, I think of that as a little step toward the so-called not-self experience in the sense that you're, you're taking a feeling and you're not identifying with it. And, 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 and I think that can be the first step toward uh, what's closer and closer to uh, what you might call the complete not self-experience. Um, you know, now, as you said, uh, there are a number of kind of dimensions, both to the idea of not self in Buddhist philosophy. And I would say to the experience of not self, you know, in the book, I make a kind of a distinction between the interior not self experience and the exterior. And I'm actually interested to hear your reactions because I know you've, like I said, you've done a lot more meditating than I have. I think you've had a much more fuller version of not self experience than I have. But um, on the one hand, if you come to view feelings and thoughts, the things inside your mind uh, with a sufficient, you know, and, and, and thoroughgoing enough uh, kind of non attachment then then you feel there's there's certainly less solidity to the self you're not identifying with thoughts and feelings so much and that's if you if you you know if you're doing that in a broad based way that kind of that's kind of a lot of not self you might say but there's also relatedly and maybe this is one of the experiences uh I recount in the book that you were alluding to uh the, I, I've had the feeling uh you know mainly on retreat where I'm like meditating and I just got this feeling that the you know I'm feeling a tingling in my foot. There's a bird singing outside, and suddenly I felt that the bird is no less a part of me than the tingling. The tingling is no more a part of me than the bird. It's as if the bounds of the self have dissolved, and and I I kind of refer to that as the exterior version, although of not self. But I think I think the two are related because I think. Having gotten to a point, as I had in, on that retreat, where the interior part of the self felt kind of disaggregated, I wasn't so closely associated with it, I think that paves the way for the bounds of the self to feel less solid and distinct. And, and the last thing I'd uh, say about this before getting your take on it is, you know, in Buddhism, again, to get back to what I said earlier, there's the idea that not seeing things clearly not only makes you suffer, it makes you make other people suffer. It makes you a less a uh, good person. And, you know, uh, clearly, if the if the bounds of the self dissolve and you feel more of a continuity with other beings, that could at least in principle have moral implications. You could feel a lessened desire to gain at the experience of other beings or, or less of an inclination to harm them or whatever. But um, I, I know I, re I remember in your book, Waking Up, Sam, you uh, you talked about a not I think a not self experience and its moral implications. So I'm I'm kind of curious as to your take on all this. 
Yeah, well, let's leave the moral implications aside for a moment because, again, I think that's it's not as straightforward as we would like it to be, which is to say... It's not automatic. Yeah, I mean, I think you can... There's a connection, and it's easy to see why morality is emphasized in Buddhism, but it's not emphasized to the same degree in every school, and there's it's just... It's possible to spend a lot of time meditating and having great insights and depending on how you know how clear your ethical code is while you do that you may be a better or worse person as a result there's the existence proof of obvious meditative attainment and real kind of monstrous levels of exploitation of students as you put it in in various teachers that just proves that yeah, at the very least if the two variables fully coincide at some point, they might not coincide until you, you're actually fully done with the project of becoming enlightened. But uh, as to the illusoriness of the self here, yeah, there are different ways of coming at it. I think that what you call the inner and outer view is a little confusing. Or, and I, I think this is something you ran into in your discussion with, uh, what was his name, Gary Weber? Gary Weber, yeah. Yeah, so... I didn't know who Gary Weber was until you introduced him in the book. I since looked him up. I actually watched your video interview with him. And I definitely follow his line through this as well. So some of these distinctions will be familiar to you. But the loss of the sense of self is the loss of a sense that there is a center in consciousness that is appropriating experience in each moment. What is left when you lose this feeling is just consciousness and its contents. And it's not consciousness on the one side and contents on the other. It's not a dualistic knower and thing known. It's actually just a kind of a totality of consciousness and all of the energetic changes that can only happen within it. So the sights and sounds and sensations and even thoughts and, and moods, all of that is there but there's no center to it. And the center that has been implied every moment of your life until that moment has been looked for closely enough and found to be absent. And so you're left with the felt sense of its absence. Again, by really, by definition, a kind of non-dual scene of consciousness and its contents. And again, this can sound very highfalutin and hard to grasp, but it can be tied down with certain analogies. So for instance, one analogy that's useful for me is you know what it's like to look at a scene in a mirror, but to have not realized you were looking at a mirror, right? Like you're sitting in a restaurant and the restaurant looks bigger than in fact it is because they have a floor to ceiling mirror running along one wall and you just think you're looking at a bunch of people over there. But then there's something that cues you into noticing that, oh, actually, that's just a reflection of the room and the room is half as big as I thought it was. Now, that transition from seeing a world of objects and people and events to recognizing that there's just no dimensionality there, that you just, you're, all you're seeing is a play of light on a wall. There's an analogy there so that you go from seeing a world with objects and people and processes that are all distinct and, you know, tiled over with concepts and all the concepts are aptly applied and this can go very, you know, very far, you know, the hateful weed or the annoying sound of the refrigerator, you have all of that. And then mindfulness becomes this process of paying closer and closer attention to all of that so that you begin to relax 
the concepts, you begin to relax the push and pull of liking and not liking. But it can become more radical than that, where you suddenly recognize that there's only consciousness and its contents, and there is no center to that experience. So then to connect with what you just said, then when you're talking about the sound of a bird or the tingling in your foot, you are just talking about consciousness and its contents. So everything does, in fact, have the same status in the same way that everything you can see in the mirror has the same status. No matter how garish or ugly or beautiful the appearance, it has exactly the same status and is equalized in the same way the moment you, you know, slap your hand on the glass of the mirror and, and realize there's no depth there. There's an analogous insight meditatively that comes with a sense of a center to consciousness drops out, if only for a few moments. Yeah. And I've had, I guess, kind of relatedly, and uh, maybe this will sound like the same experience, but it wasn't had the feeling like meditating on retreat, hearing the rain outside and just kind of for a while feeling that I was where the rain was. My consciousness of the rain was where the rain was. And 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 uh, so I, there was consciousness without a center in a, in a way. Now, Gary, uh, Gary Weber, um, you know, when I say the thing to Gary about like the moment when the tingling in my foot feels no, you know, like no more uh, part of me than the bird, he's like, yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, it's just that um, Gary, I think, feels this kind of thing on a much more ongoing basis. Now, he's an interesting case because I actually I think you fall in this category, too. You've studied both in kind of Hindu and Buddhist traditions, right? Like you, you, you I think you talk in your book about both. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Advaita Vedanta and Buddhism. And uh, so, Gary, it's interesting when he ex describes his experience. And he's a fascinating case, by the way, because. When uh, he participated in this uh, well-known study at Yale Medical School where they took a bunch of very adept meditators and established that when they get into a deep meditative state, the so-called default mode network, which is the part of the brain that is active when your mind is wandering, gets quiet. But in Gary's case, it was quiet to begin with, okay? He's just walking around with a quiet default mode network, unlike some very adept meditators who are also part of that study. And and so when Gary describes the way life is for him, I, you know, I, I, I pay attention, you know, the way his everyday life is. And, 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 and it's an interesting, it's interesting to hear him try to describe it because, well, for one thing, I, I think he, I think once in a casual conversation with him, that's probably not recorded anywhere. He, he, you know, I said, somebody, somebody that, that, that meditates a lot said it was like, they feel as if there's a universal field of consciousness and they are just one point of access to it. And, and I think that resonated with him. But the other interesting thing is, um, you know, if, if you, if you take both the Hindu and the Buddhist perspective seriously, then the question of how you interpret what we've called the not self experience is challenging because Hindus believe the self does exist or at least the soul or, or something. And so, you know, I taught a I taught a course at, at Princeton on this stuff, turned it into an online course on Coursera. And, and Gary was in the online course and he was saying he was talking about a feeling of oneness. Right. And, you know, when he has an experience, you know, somewhat like the one I have. And, and again, I think he has it on a more ongoing basis, but a sense of oneness, you know, with everything. And and some of the pretty knowledgeable Buddhist students rebelled in the comments section. They said, wait a second, that's not Buddhism. 
there, you know, it's, it's, it's not an expanse of oneness because there's no self to be one with it. It's emptiness and it's an expanse of emptiness now. And if you hear Gary talk about it, he's kind of vacillating between the two ways of talking. You know, he'll say, uh, well, anyway, it's interesting. Some, some of it's in the book. It, it, it's interesting. My own view is that I, I wonder really how different the experiences are, right? I mean, if you're a Buddhist, you might have this, what is largely the same experience and view it as this expanse of emptiness because the self doesn't exist. If you're a Hindu, you might uh, view it as some kind of union of your soul or self with the universal soul or self, right? When the barriers, uh, the, the borders around the self break down. Um, but it's an interesting, uh, I'm curious about your take on that too, because you do. Oh, finally, I know what I want to say. You know, you, you mentioned that, well, not self doesn't automatic or the sense of continuity with the world out there doesn't necessarily have a moral dimension. Um, but I was thinking about the part in your book when I think you talk about some such experience and I think you talk about seeing like the truth. I, I think you almost say the truth of universal love or something that that everyone out there. I don't know. Maybe maybe I'm imagining it, but isn't there something like that? There are definitely experiences like that. I mean, you can feel unconditional love for all sentient beings. I mean, that, that's a state of consciousness that one can inhabit for a time. And perhaps one can inhabit it permanently, but it doesn't have a necessarily a direct connection to the loss of a sense of self. As you know, there's this Buddhist practice called metta meditation, which targets that state of mind. I think to some degree, the disagreement between Buddhists and what you're calling Hindus, but really people who are teaching Advaita Vedanta, historically has been exaggerated, although you don't tell either of those camps that because they won't agree. But I, I think we're talking about people who have, in many cases, the same experience. And for cultural reasons and reasons of you know, philosophical tradition, they're emphasizing different words in describing them, or their description is to one or another degree contaminated by concepts. I think the, the Buddhists tend to have the upper hand in the debate here in emphasizing the non-reification of what's left when the self gets transcended. So it's not so to talk about oneness, I would agree, is potentially misleading. And there are people walking around thinking they're experiencing oneness and they're actually just thinking a lot about the world and they're not aware of, of that undercurrent of thought. So it's possible to be deluded about these things too. But I think the experience of non-duality is, I mean, not non-duality is, is a better concept for me here than oneness, because oneness seems to suggest if I lose my sense of self and I'm hearing a bird, I move from being not only identified with my body over here, I'm simultaneously identified with the bird's body over there. That's the sense that people can get. If you recognize that you are one with the universe, well, then you are identified with everything in the way that you feel identified with your little self now. That's not what I'm talking about or what I believe anyone is really talking about when they talk about selflessness or non-duality or even oneness in the normal sense. Rather, what it is is you lose the sense of identifying with your own mind and body, right? You lose the sense that there's an inner subject. It's not that your body disappears. It's not that even thoughts disappear. All that remains is consciousness and its contents. But another way of saying that is what remains is the world, right? Everything that you're calling a world 
is still here. The sound of the bird, the tingling in your toe, the felt sense of conscious experience is still here. There's just no center to it. And to call that thing oneness is an act of reification that doesn't seem accurate or necessary. This is why emptiness is the term that the Buddhists go to. It's a very misleading term, as you know, because it seems negative to people. It seems like a you're talking about some kind of desertification of experience. But no, I mean, emptiness just means that what remains when you're no longer reifying everything in consciousness with concepts is a kind of far more mysterious totality of appearance that is not, again, the analogy with a mirror seems kind of apt. If you were to stand in front of a mirror where you could see people and animals and objects and various you know, cause and effect relationships, you could talk intelligently about everything you see. But at the level of the mirror, those divisions between things are somewhat less than real. The difference between a man and the thing he's holding in the mirror is born really only of the conceptual boundaries you are imposing upon what is, in fact, just a play of light on a wall. That same insight can be had with respect to your own consciousness. Now, this is not to say that there's no such thing as the real world or there's only consciousness and the universe is an illusion within it. I'm not going there. I'm saying as a matter of first-person empirical reality, there is only consciousness in its contents. Now, science tells us a lot about how that is very likely related to the brain and arising out of a physical world that is you know, not subsumed by it. But in terms of talking about what it's like to be us in each moment, we're talking about consciousness and its contents. And most people feel that there's a self in the middle of that, and that can be disconfirmed. Right. Well, I think, um, you know, what the two versions of the experience have, the, you know, so-called Hindu experience or Vedanta experience and the Buddhist experience, I, th I think what they have in common is the idea that the ordinary sense of the bounds of our consciousness is in some sense arbitrary. Uh, you know, we, we think of having this sphere of consciousness associated with the self, but uh, through meditation, you come to appreciate that, well, that sense is not absolutely necessary. You can get to a point where you have, uh, uh, you know, a different sense of consciousness. What we you know again, regardless of leaving aside the question of whether you, you're sensing a, an expanse of emptiness or an expanse of unity or whatever you want to call it. And, uh, you know, I think again, uh, evolution is an interesting perspective to look at this from because, you know, I should pause and say, I think you and I agree that consciousness is and, you know, subjective experience, it's a pretty mysterious phenomenon to begin with. It's not entirely obvious why it's here at all. One can imagine a natural selection among these machines we call organisms that did not involve it? It's actually, it's, it's not even clear, I'd be interested to get your take on this, but it's not even clear to me that it's not an epiphenomenon. Just, uh, I'm going to reference something you said in your book. I, we agree that consciousness is actually the most important thing in the universe. I mean, it's what makes anything potentially important. The fact that the lights are on, the fact that there's an experience to be had, the fact that anything can be made better or worse off by any change in the universe, that is entirely dependent upon the reality of consciousness. But in terms of what consciousness is actually doing, 
moment to moment in mammals like ourselves or in any other system, it may in fact not be doing anything. As you say, we could easily imagine a mere concatenation of causes that could get selected for that wouldn't entail consciousness. And everything we are conscious of seems pushed to the fore by processes that we're not conscious of. I mean, everything you're thinking and feeling and and deciding is getting processed by parts of your mind that you're not conscious of. And so why should the lights ever be on for that process to continue? Right. I mean, I'd say not only is it possible that subjective experience is an epiphenomenon, in other words, it, it is something that is influenced by the physical machinery, but does not in turn influence the machinery. So it's it's like the relationship of like a shadow to your hand as your hand, you know, movement of your hand influences the shadow, doesn't work in the other direction. Um, not only is that conceivable, but I would say if there's a view of consciousness that is that is implicit in beha- modern behavioral science, that's it. But, you know, it, it's an epiphenomenal view because the presumption in modern behavioral science, modern behavioral science, and it's a presumption that's pretty much been borne out, is that as we learn more and more, we can explain the functioning of living systems in terms that are strictly physical, just the workings of the machinery. And, and if that's true, like if when I, you know, get my hand too close to a fire and then withdraw it suddenly, if indeed you can explain that behavior entirely on the basis of the physical information processing in my hand, you know, the the nerve endings get this physical sensation, they transmit physical information up to my muscles and and I reflexively withdraw my hand. If that entirely explains what's going on, well then why do I feel the pain? Apparently that the pain is of no functional significance. And I you know, you were asking me earlier about how does any of this stuff connect with my earlier books. My first book, Three Scientists and Their Gods, which was published in 1988, I made this point. I said, you know, subjective experience would seem to be evolutionarily superfluous, uh, according to a very uh, mainstream scientific way of thinking about behavioral science. And I, 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 I you know, I, I, I said, um, you know, you can, I just went, went through it. You can imagine natural selection working as it's described, and there is no reason to expect subjective experience to ever show up. And I also made the point that, um, you know, as you just said, subjective experience is is the thing that gives life meaning. If you imagine this planet full of zombie humans, and I got into this in the book, um, that uh, that behave like humans but don't have consciousness, why would there be any reason to care what happens to that planet, right? If there's no subjective experience, if they're not capable of pleasure and pain, there's no moral stake. So I, I continue to think it's amazing that the thing that gives life meaning is the thing that there's no obvious reason for, at least from a, a one very mainstream, uh, you know, kind of scientific standpoint. And, and you know, maybe, but it, it is the case that... Um, but but I would say, again, I get back to the point that, well, whatever consciousness is doing here, uh, it's not surprising, given natural selection's uh, emphasis on, the, on the, 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 the individual organism, keeping it intact, helping it get its genes into the next generation. It's not surprising that 
given that consciousness is clearly correlated with the information processing, you know, the, the, the motivated goal-seeking information processing going on in an organism, it's not surprising that the conception of consciousness is a conception of a kind of a sphere that's, that ends more or less where the organism and its interests ends. But, but you know, maybe that's not an, a, an absolutely necessary feature of consciousness. It's just, it was just inevitable that, that given that natural selection is the thing carrying consciousness to these, um, you know, these complex levels that we enjoy, it, it was it was it was maybe in some sense natural that uh consciousness would have this identity that's very closely associated with the organism. Maybe that's a temporary thing. You know, maybe if if like all of humankind becomes more enlightened, that that there are, you know, what you could call maybe distortions built into consciousness in our way of of uh, perceiving the world, and they could get like undistorted and and to the extent that they get undistorted, uh, you know, maybe consciousness would not seem to be confined to the individual organism. Now, I'm sure I've gotten at least as cosmic as uh, as, as you want me to get, but I'd be curious as to... Uh... Well, well, there, there are a couple of pieces there. One is I would say that consciousness is actually not identified with the organism in the way that would seem evolutionarily rational. So that the boundary between the self and the world is drawn at the skin in some sense, and that makes sense. I mean, in terms of you know, one's bodily integrity and the survival of the machine that will get your genes into the next generation. But as a matter of experience, most people don't feel identical to their bodies. They feel like they have bodies. They feel like they're riding around in their bodies and they're up in their heads as something smaller, kind of a, a locus of consciousness that can pay attention to the body as a kind of object in the world. It's a very special object, but it is an object. And so when you start out as a meditator, you close your eyes and you're given this first task of paying attention to the breath. Most people feel like they're in their heads behind their eyes. And now the task is to get closer to the breath than they can, you know, without any training. You're trying to feel the breath at the tip of the nose or in your abdomen. And you feel like you're up here in the head at some distance from the object you're trying to pay closer attention to. And it becomes this effort to kind of drill down into this particular object of consciousness more and more closely so as to become a more and more concentrated meditator. And then when you hear a bird, it, well, the bird feels like it's out there, not where you are. You're in your head. But so too it is with the tingling in your foot. You feel like the foot is down there and it's not quite you. So your consciousness doesn't actually fully subsume everything that you, by dint of evolution, should consider your body or, or what you are. So that's one weird mismatch. The, the other is that, as you said, there are processes where consciousness is clearly the last to know. So if you, you know, burn your hand by virtue of the reflex built into us for obvious evolutionary reasons, you are recoiling in pain even before you become consciously aware of the pain. In that case, it's a good question as to, you know, what's consciousness doing there and what is consciously felt pain doing there? But generally speaking, if consciousness is simply one of the things the brain is doing, right, if consciousness is at bottom physical, however it appears to us subjectively, which obviously most scientists believe, 
well, then if consciousness plays a role in doing anything causally, it will play a causal role by virtue of whatever it is physically. So there's what it feels like to be you as a matter of consciousness, but then there is whatever consciousness really is as a matter of information processing in your brain, say, if that is in fact the cash value of consciousness. And so then there's the question of what is accomplished by virtue of a pain or a goal becoming consciously expressed as a matter of your experience at the level of neurophysiology, which is the cash value of its being conscious in any moment. There's a goal or what could be described as a goal or a pain or what could be described as a pain at the level of the brain that's not conscious. And then there's whatever the neural correlate of its becoming conscious in us in each moment. And that difference, presumably, if there is any evolutionary rationale for consciousness, that difference has to make a difference, right? There has to be you know, behavioral routines that you couldn't possibly engage but for the fact that you have consciously entertained a goal. But again, its cash value can't be the subjective feeling of what it's like to be us. Its cash value has to be whatever the difference is at the level of the clockwork in the brain. But it's still not clear to me that there are good examples of things we do, however complex, that require consciousness. Again, this could just be an error of imagination. I mean, the fact that we can imagine something doesn't mean that it's actually lawfully possible of the universe. But you could imagine a system, every bit as intelligent and complex as ourselves, that manages to do all of these complex things and more without the lights being on in any sense. Yeah. I mean, the only, the only kinds of things that consciousness is actually required for is for us to have a conversation like this where we talk about consciousness or for that matter, when you say, uh, I have pain to someone, and, and in that sense, you could say that once there is human language, you could argue that consciousness actually has an influence on things, even if it had always been epiphenomenal with no function prior to that. Now that, I have a whole super cosmic, very conjectural theory <laughs> that involves that fact. I'm pretty sure you don't want me to get into that, uh, and it's not re really related to Buddhism. but. Um, but the, I, I would say on your point about consciousness not being uniformly distributed uh, throughout the body, that's certainly true. And, and in fact, you know, consciousness seems to be correlated with the extent to which the information processing is not routine. So like the information processing involved in making my heart beat and so on, you know, that doesn't become part of my consciousness until things start going awry and it's no longer uh, routine. So, you know, it, it kind of stands to reason in that sense that um, consciousness would feel like it's up in the head because that's we know from what happens in the brain that that's where the kind of unexpected, you know, the, the novel stuff is being processed. Like, oh, here comes this person. How should I deal with that? Um, the Now, I, I still would say that even granted all that, it, it this all kind of makes, what, what I meant when I said that con the tendency of consciousness to be a, you know, to seem as if it's kind of confined to an organism, that that, that makes a kind of Darwinian sense is, it, what I mean is just that, you know, ordinarily, something causes me pain, even if it's my foot, 
I do feel like that's part of me. I mean, I, I have an, a, a degree of identifying with the pain that I just don't have if I see a bird that gets crushed, right? I mean, ordinarily, at least, uh, you know, in my normal state of consciousness, I may feel some pang of empathy, but it's not like feeling the pain myself. Now, interestingly, if you look at my offspring who are carrying my genes, then the empathy is closer to actually feeling the pain. And that also makes sense in, in Darwinian terms, right? Like, like uh, you know, the, 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 the degree to which you almost feel things happening to the other organism have something to do with the, the, their proximity to your genetic interests, which with offspring is very close. So that all, all I meant was that, um, you know, consciousness um, in, in the course of evolving for reasons we don't understand, but in, in the course of being associated with the evolution uh, of human beings, when I when I mentioned that, you know, maybe that evolution entails in some sense distortion, uh, I meant partly like in moral terms, if I hear about someone dying in Rwanda, that actually is as important as, you know, if, if I hear of someone suffering in some distant land, in moral terms, I believe, and you probably believe, that actually isn't as important as me suffering. But it doesn't feel like that because my consciousness bears such a close correspondence to my being, my ordinary consciousness. And so I'm saying, you know, maybe that what you might call a moral distortion is an, is kind of a necessary price to pay for the natural selection that got us to a point where we have complex consciousness. But as these meditative practices suggest, it, it maybe it's not an eternally necessary feature of consciousness that it be quote unquote distorted in this way, or that it feels so tightly confined to myself. That's, that's what I meant. Well, I think there is fluidity to what we can identify with that is certainly open to being revised. Many of us have experienced a distribution of ourselves into other media that are just fundamentally new, like the internet. To what degree is your self now online? as opposed to in your body? That seems to be an increasingly reasonable question to ask. I mean, for instance, when I have to figure out whether or not I have said something before or thought something before, or whether the thought I think is mine now really is mine or it originates with someone else, well, the best way to figure that out more and more is not to look inside myself or to meditate, or to ask my wife, or to do anything, especially local, a Google search will reveal what's what there better than most things now. And in some real sense, I've outsourced, or it's been outsourced for me, kind of a fundamental operation of memory and self-understanding. And obviously, we all react to things that happen to us only online. It's interesting to consider what it would be like to just not be on the internet at all, but still do what it is you and I do, right? So to have no social media experience, to never read what is said about you, to never feel a temptation to respond, to have none of those relationships that you and I both have that are entirely virtual, right? We're talking to people or emailing people who we never actually sit down with in, in person or you know go for years without sitting down with. And just to be yourself in your very local world 
immediately related to the people around you, but to still be doing what it is you and I do. I mean, so there, there are people like this. There are people who have actually major swings in their reputation. They'll take huge reputational hits. I remember, I think it was James Watson, when he got into trouble for his, saying some things that were you know, fairly plausibly uh, derided as, if not totally racist, you know, just wrongheaded. I think he has basically zero online life, right? So his reputation was in flames. And yet, because he's not getting Google alerts on himself or checking social media or even getting email, I think he really is a Luddite in this respect. He was just unaware of what was happening in his life. But to some degree, that was happening to him. It's just because of his use of technology, he wasn't feeling that that tingling in his toe because he, he was offline. You know, I think uh, as long as we've gotten a little cosmic anyway, I mean, it's, 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 it's uh, you know, in terms of the potential bounds of consciousness and the possible malleability of it, you know, it's worth noting that what you might think is happening on planet Earth, if you were viewing it from a distance and in time lapse, is the construction of a giant global brain, right? I mean, the internet, uh, it, it is not itself a brain, but the internet combined with the people who are on it and are sharing information and solving problems jointly and so on, it looks more and more like a giant uh, global brain. And, uh, you know, it, it's not, it doesn't seem to be impossible that it could someday, uh, you know, feel like something to be the giant global brain. It's like you can't exclude the possibility that it does now. I mean, you can't exclude the possibility that my individual cells well, uh, enough. Uh, I, I just, I just would say that there have been views uh, about this, uh, you know, including, you know, kind of theological views. Pierre Teilhard de Chardin talked about like, like seventy years ago. He was really pretty prescient. Now, this this Catholic paleontologist and uh, mystic talked about the construction of the noosphere, uh, the the thinking envelope of the brain, um, and, and and I think he attributed. To that, a kind of a unified consciousness, and and in his view, the the, the glue was going to be almost inevitably some kind of brotherly love. Uh, it, that seems a long way from inevitable to me right now, but um, you know, uh, I, I I don't know. It's all uh, there's a lot of a uh, lot of strange. You know, I mean, there's a lot of a lot of grounds for cosmic speculation. That one thing you point to, which is a genuine mystery with respect to the brain, just why consciousness is at the level that it seems to be and not lower or higher, and what it would take for consciousness to be instantiated at a higher level, you know, a collective level, whether you're talking about multiple human minds or something like the internet, you know, whether there are subsystems in our own brains that are alternately conscious or independently conscious. So this is something I wrote about briefly in Waking Up, the idea that when you perform a commissurotomy on, on a patient to treat their grand mal seizures, you're dividing the midline structures that connect the two hemispheres of the brain. And what we know now is that you're creating two independent loci of consciousness. It seems only accurate to say two subjects in a brain that has been fully divided in that way. Now, now, is that known? Because I was wondering, because, you know, uh, I, I, uh, I got into the so-called split brain experiments in my book, and I, and, I, and, I, and I know you did in your book. And, um, you know, Michael Gazzaniga, who was involved in those experiments, he, uh, he writes as if 
sometimes I think he writes as if he no, he thinks not only that in a case like that, the left hemisphere and the right hemisphere may have separate spheres of actually consciousness. I think he sometimes writes as if, you know, he subscribes to the modular model of the mind. And I think he sometimes writes as if these these subterranean modules may it, it may be something to be like them, you know, to use the, uh, you know, the terminology of Thomas Nagel. It is some, is it some like something to be a, well, well, that that's, that's where I was going, but I was wondering, you know, the only reason we know it's like something to be the left hemisphere is because that's the hemisphere that talks, right? So in a split brain patient, that's the hemisphere that can communicate with you. But do we know that if you divide hemisphere, the hemispheres, uh, there's a separate sphere of subjectivity in the right hemisphere? Yeah, well, we certainly do in the case where there's language ability in both hemispheres. There are cases where both have had enough communicative power that it would just be perverse to say that one has the lights on and one doesn't, because both have, you know, language ability isn't totally segregated in one hemisphere or the other in many people. And we just know that much of our own conscious experience is even if you happen to be someone who's highly lateralized and language is, well, let's say in the extreme case, 100% of productive you know, language is in your left hemisphere, we know that so much of what you consciously apprehend is being mediated by the right hemisphere, that to say that the lights must go off the moment you divide the hemispheres doesn't make any sense. And it wouldn't make any sense. I mean, there are people who get hemispherectomies where the, the whole left hemisphere gets removed or they're born without one, you know, these are still people who have conscious lives. So it's weird to think the presence of a functioning left hemisphere would suddenly rob the right hemisphere of consciousness there. But to Gazanica's point, if you buy the fact that dividing the hemispheres divides consciousness, and there's, again, I really can't read the research any other way there, it seems reasonable to imagine that an imperfect level of information sharing across the hemispheres, you know, to what is in fact some degree of division, you know, short of surgery, just, just incomplete information transfer dictates an incomplete sharing of conscious experience, right? So if there's consciousness on both sides and it only gets shared if the two hemispheres are connected, well, then anything less than perfect information transfer would dictate some satellites of consciousness, if only for a time. Maybe there are periods where there's perfect unity of consciousness or periods where there's rival experiences of consciousness. But then it's just weird to think about, you know, what are you in that case? But most of us think that we're sitting over here in the left hemisphere, you know, using our words, and that if there's something else in us that's conscious, it is a different point of view. And that is the case when you're talking to the left hemisphere in a split brain patient and, you know, he or she has the gift of gab, that subject tends to be blissfully unaware of the existence of a silent other subject in his or her head. Everything is, is spoken with this conviction that, you know, this is, you know, I'm now giving you the full account of what I am and why I did things. And yet you have a right hemisphere who's busily, you know, moving the left hand and doing otherwise. But to some degree, we could be in that situation even now, which is just, you know, absolutely bizarre to think about. The question, I mean, one question raised by all this is just, is it possible for something like me to have a unified sense of consciousness? And at the same time, my constituents, the cons you know, the have independent 
senses of consciousness. I mean, you, you carry that upward and you're back to the question of, is it possible that even now it is like something to be the giant global you know, brain, or, or it's maybe it's like something to be a corporation, or it's like something to be a discussion group, right? There could be, could there be a, a conscious entity at a higher level? Um, the, I mean, this is one reason that, that uh, not, not the only reason, but one reason that I, I, I would like to see the world successfully make the transition to a cohesive global community and it, it, it gets back to why I think mindfulness meditation is, is, can be an important tool. I mean, I think if you look at the psychology of tribalism, I just wrote a piece about this in Wired. Um, if you look at, or at least for the website, not the physical magazine, but if you look at the, it's, it's called How Meditation Can Save America, I think. Um, if you look at what we call the psychology of tribalism, you know, that isn't just about rage and so on. It's about very subtle cognitive biases, including confirmation bias, attribution bias, that I think we are more subject to if we're not aware of the way feelings are influencing our thoughts. And I think if the planet, it may be that if the planet is going to make this transition to uh, a kind of a global level of social organization, which doesn't mean to, doesn't have to involve like global government per se, but it probably would involve some greater de degree of global governance and international cooperation. Um, it may be that it's going to have to be that people, somewhat broadly speaking, become more aware of how their minds work, how these biases work, how subtle feelings they're having may be infiltrating their cognition and kind of warping it. And by the way, I think this is another place where Buddhism was ahead of the curve. Modern psychology has finally come to appreciate how finely intertwined affect and cognition are. And I think Buddhism was way ahead on that. Um, but in any event, it was really, this was, you know, as I say in the book, it was one motivation for writing it is that I think, I, I'm not saying mindfulness meditation is the only way to attain a kind of, you know, wholesome like metacognition where you're aware enough of your of the way your mind works to make it work more effectively and clearly and and rid it of some of these kind of tribal biases that we're all subject to but i do think you know mindfulness meditation is is i it's the best practical tool that i've become aware of and i i, I really think you know uh, that, that whether this stuff goes under the label of buddhism or anything else uh, whatever, you know, the kinds of meditative practices that bring this greater degree of awareness of how your mind's work, how your mind works, and, and in the process kind of liberates you or can liberate you from some of the distorting influences on your mind, you know, it just may be, you know, essential to the survival of humankind that, uh, that the word gets spread. Well, that is something we agree about, Bob. <laughs> so we've we've come back. Yeah, we've come yeah. full circle. Uh, yeah, we do. We we have disagreements over other things that may or may not be conducive to global harmony, but but we needn't go there right now. And maybe next time, uh, if we have another uh, dialogue slash debate about that, uh, maybe whatever complaints you may have about how I've uh, characterized you or your views in your past will will be deemed less valid by uh by the objectivity I now uh 
I now have. Yeah. Now I'm deeply into meditation or something. It's always nice to um, move to another spot in the conversation. And I, mean, I just see this as if, if ever there were a topic where we could be inclined to let go of the past and just have a new conversation. Surely we found that topic today. So I, it was great to talk to you. And I, I really recommend that people read your book because like Dan Harris's book, 10% Happier, it's a wonderful introduction to the topic for people who would be skeptical about it. Both you and Dan are very hard-headed people who are not easily bowled over by idealistic claims about New Age or otherwise about how transformative this new fad will be. And yet you've both found tremendous value in the practice and, and get, sort of got dragged kicking and screaming to it and then really found it to be not only interesting and helpful, but fairly revolutionary. I really recommend that our, our most skeptical listeners consider your book a, a good starting point. Well, I really appreciate that. And I also hope meditators may find something of value in it. But you're right about Dan's book. Um, uh, and, and, you know, he's, he's become a real evangelist on this subject. And, and so he's uh, doing God's work, so to speak. Before we get off, what's the best point of contact for you online? Uh, I, I have a, two Twitter addresses, Robert Ryder, one word, that's W-R-I-G-H-T-E-R, a little pun there, um, is one Twitter handle, Robert Ryder. The other one is uh, at Darwin Dharma, one word again. Um, where, where I just tweet, uh, Buddhist stuff that started as a, as a, a Twitter thing for the core, my online course. Um, you know, I have a site called mindfulresistance.net where we do a little newsletter. The premise, this is the early days and our, what that's about is still evolving, but the, the premise, and I, I wrote a piece about this in Vox, uh, recently on mindful resistance. The premise is that, uh, sometimes opponents of Trump are doing his work for him by overreacting to his provocations or in various other ways, not being as maybe focused and skillful in the opposition. Um, and uh, so if you go there, you can um, subscribe to the newsletter. You know, I run uh, bloggingheads.tv, meaningoflife.tv, where people can find, among other things, this conversation uh, between me and you that you referred to that happened uh, 10 years ago, but was only posted like a year ago because it had been lost in the dustbin of history. Those are the main things I can think of. Great. To be continued. Yeah, I really appreciate it, Sam. Yeah. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, likewise. <laughs>